This morning we continue our series on divine exposures, where God reveals himself in a particular way to a variety of people. We've looked at Job, and we've looked at um, Elijah, Jacob, Joseph, Abraham a number of times, Sarah, and we're back with an encounter of God with Abraham in Genesis 18. If you are here two weeks ago, you know that we started the first part of 18 where God exposes himself to Sarah. <clears throat> and today we want to uh, look at this exposure to um, Abraham. Before I begin, though, I do want to thank all of you for your prayers and your uh, concern. My mother went to be with the Lord at 2.10 on Thursday, and my brother and I were at her bedside. It couldn't have been better. Um, she uh, had suffered a lot with some uh, severe fractures of her back, but then she contracted pneumonia, and we didn't even know that. Uh, that would have been on Monday, and so by Thursday, um, we decided that we needed to end the treatments because she wasn't making any progress. But the truth is, she made great progress. Uh, she got to be with the one she has longed to be uh, in the presence of. Poor English, but you understand what I mean. Um, I tell the story, I uh, have told you before, um, that when I was a 20-something-year-old man in D.C., wondering uh, what was the call of God on my life, knowing it but not wanting it, um, being a a terrible time of of, uh, discouragement. I remember it as a young boy getting up early and uh, going out into the family room that was connected to the kitchen by a doorway, and I heard this singing, and I knew it was my mother. And uh, I thought, what's she singing at the sink at like 7 a.m.? What's up with that? And I looked around, sort of furtive glance, and she was all alone just singing, singing hymns and kind of into it. And I thought, that's weird. But then like uh, 18, 15 years later, the Lord used that in my life because I thought, you know what? She wasn't singing in anybody's presence but the Lord. It had to be real. And if he's that real to her, then he can be that real to anybody, even me. So there are a lot of lessons, but it was a great, great blessing to be there as she breathed her last breath, totally peaceful, totally aware that she was held by her loving Savior and her two miscreant sons. Okay, let's uh, take a look at the text. Uh, Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16. Then the men set out from there. They looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great 
and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still, or still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep them away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? The Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Then Abraham spoke to the Lord again and said, Suppose fifty are found there. The Lord answered, For the sake of forty, sorry, forty are found there. For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. The Lord answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, Lord, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are not found there. The Lord answered, For the sake of 20, I'll not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And the Lord answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place, which is his tent. Charles Allen, the famous Methodist preacher of the last century, once said, prayer is not the means by which I get from God the things I want. It's the means by which I put myself in a place where God begins to get from me the things he deserves. And you know something? Nowhere in the Bible is that more clear than here at this text. One of my heroes, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, wrote an eight-volume series on the book of Romans, a commentary, and in that he gave a great illustration of prayer. He said a man loved violin music. In fact, he loved the violin so much he went out and bought one, even though he couldn't play. He also got a music stand, and then he went down to the music store, and he bought all of these scores of these famous symphonies, and he brought it all home to his living room. He had a great radio, it was the 1950s, and he often would listen to classical music. So one morning on a Saturday, the announcer announced that that night at 7 p.m., Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra from the music, the Academy of Music, would play Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. He said, hey, that's good, I've got that score. So about 6.30, he put it on his music stand, laid it out got his violin sort of tuned up and put it under his chin and got ready. And as soon as the announcer introduced the great orchestra, they began to play Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, and this man began to play along. He was horrible. Scream, eh, eh, eh. Couldn't play. It went on for 45 minutes. He's screeching. He's breaking strings, having to fix them. He loses his place. But maybe, just maybe, he hit like three right notes. But he kept doing it. Day after day, month after month, 
He kept playing along with the orchestra. And the truth is, if he wanted to break into Yankee Doodle Dandy in the middle of Brahms' concerto, there would be discord in his house, but not at the Academy of Music, because that music would go on perfectly as the composer had written it. Well, after a considerable time, he became a fairly accomplished violinist. Why? Because he learned to submit to the score that the author had written. And Barnhouse said that's the way it is with God's plan and prayer. Before the foundation of the world, God established the plan of history. He's determined it before all of creation, and prayer is learning to tune into those notes, learning to play in tune with the score of the eternal composer. It's not seeking to get God to do something according to your will. It's actually laying your own will down and saying, Lord, what is it that you desire to do? Why do I have this burden in my soul? Nowhere is that clearer than here in this text. Did you know that this is the first extended prayer in the Bible? And yet when you read it for the first time, you think it sounds like two Jewish businessmen bartering in the marketplace. How about 50? How about 45? How about 40? And yet when you dig into it, you see it's not a barter at all because one of the parties has already determined what he will do and the other party is getting to know what that is. The Lord knows what he's going to do. But isn't it amazing, instead of just going and doing it, He takes Abraham aside and he invites him in. God invites the exposure of himself to Abraham. And you know what happens? Abraham is changed by this. You say, how do you know? Genesis 22 that Ken preached last week. What would cause him to go up on that mountain to sacrifice his son without so much as an objection? I would submit to you is because of this experience and what he experienced here. And you know something? When you dig into this text, not only will the Holy Spirit show you that the Lord, the Holy Spirit himself changed Abraham, he can change you. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the invitation. Look at verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, remember the context. The Lord has come to Abraham and Sarah's tent in chapter 18, verse 1. And the reason is, and we talked about this two weeks ago, is because the Lord wants to give a promise to Sarah. He's given that same promise to Abraham, but now he wants to give it to Sarah. Why? Because Sarah is in a bad place. She is alienated. She is feeling shame. She's been barren. And a woman who was barren in those days was considered cursed of God. And so the same promise God makes to Abraham in chapter 17, he comes back and gives to Sarah at the tent, but he extends it. He says the same, not only will you have a child, you'll have a child by this time next year when I return. In her barrenness, in her shame, in her alienation, the Lord comes and exposes her pain, but more than that, he exposes his compassion. 
And in a couple of weeks, when we look at the story of Hagar in chapter 16, we'll see the further dimension of Sarah's pain. So when he comes to that tent, he comes not so much for Abraham, he comes for Sarah. And yet the Bible says, as he's getting ready to go, he says, should I not reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do? The Bible says it this way, then the three men, in verse 16, then the three men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And, and two weeks ago, we really didn't define this, so I felt like I should. Who are these three men? Well, we know that one man is the pre-incarnate Christ, Lord himself. Who are the others? They have to be angels that are accompanying him. And yet, when the, when the Lord says... Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It's first person pronoun. I, not we. Why does he say I? Because the angels are not going to be a part of this disclosure. In verse 22 it says, The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. So get this. The angels leave. The Lord is face to face with Abraham. And that reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter. He says, these things, which is the gospel, the angels long to look into. See, this exposure of God is going to be between Abraham and God and no one else. Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever said to somebody, you know, I really have this secret I should tell you, but I don't know if I should. You know, I really would love to tell you something, but I'm not sure I should. That is a lie you desperately want to tell them. And the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? The answer is no, nor do I want to. What he's saying is this is going to be full disclosure, Abraham. Now listen up. Should I hide from you the one I've chosen? The one who will be the progenitor of the Messiah, the one through whom the chosen seed will come, the one upon whom I've placed my promises, should I withhold from you my design and my plan? And the answer is no, because the Bible says as soon as the angels leave, Abraham draws near to him. Can you think of a greater exposure to God than that? God and Abraham, one-on-one. Second, notice the injunction. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see. Now the word outcry there literally means to screech. It literally means a screech or a moan or a cry from someone who's oppressed. So you ask yourself, what, what, who's being oppressed and what, what's this all about? I thought Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was sexual. Well, actually, the Lord answers that through the prophet Ezekiel, centuries later. Listen to what he says to his people Israel through the prophet. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, an excess of food, a prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor or needy. Instead, they were haughty. They did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Do you see what the Lord's saying here? The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is... 
that the haves are not helping the have-nots. It's the sin of oppression. It's the sin of greed. It's the sin of searing injustice and God's not going to stand for it. But I love what He says. I'm going to go down and take a look and see if it's true. And if not, I will know. You know what Martin Luther said when he read that? He said, this speaks of the mercy of God. The judgment of God is a strange work. Look what he's saying. I'm going to go take a look. And I'm not going to do anything until I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm inviting you in. Why would the Lord invite him in? Why would the Lord not just go down and take a look and destroy? Why would he do that? I'll tell you why. Because he wants Abraham to intercede for them. He's placing Abraham in the role of a priest, a mediator. Defend them, the Lord is saying. Third, notice the intercession. Look at verse 23. Abraham drew near to the Lord and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now that word, drawn near, those words, literally means to approach, and it's a legal term. It's describing an attorney who goes before a judge on his bench. So think of what the Bible's telling us. The Lord is inviting Abraham to approach him as a defense attorney for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see this? He invites him to argue their case. The Lord invites Abraham to stand between his holiness and the wickedness of men and mediate. You know what's amazing about that? He did the same thing for Moses. Moses stood between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of God's people. So did Jeremiah. So did Samuel. So did Amos. They all interceded for the people of God. And they said, Lord, these are your people. Don't wipe them out. But you know what's amazing here? These are the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're Canaanites. They're enemies of God. The first extended prayer in the Bible is for pagans. The Lord says, I want you to intercede for them. For those that don't even know me. He never mentions Lot, his nephew. Never mentions Lot's family. Never prays for himself. Never prays for his relations. He's pleading for people who are complete strangers and enemies of God. Fourth, notice the insight. Look at verse 32. Then Abraham said, Oh, let, it not, let, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I'll not destroy it. Now, this is Abraham's last pleading. He's gone to God six times. If there are 50 righteous, would you wipe out everybody? How about 45? How about 40? You see what he's doing? He's not just praying. He's exploring the parameters of God's law. Look where he starts. Verse 25. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Notice he doesn't impugn God's character. He knows God's holy. He affirms the integrity of the law. He knows that the wages of sin is death. He knows that the law is a perfect representation of the character of God. He doesn't say, oh Lord, those sins aren't so bad. Let me show you some other ones. He doesn't say they don't know any better. He starts with what he knows. God is good and holy and thoroughly on the side of those victims of injustice. That's his starting point. But look where he goes. Will not the judge of all the earth do its just? Will the judge of all the earth destroy the righteous with the wicked? I mean, Lord, let's say there's, t- there's a few God-fearing men and women. I mean, will you destroy everybody? I mean, let's say there's some good people there. Will you destroy everybody in one fell swoop? Remember when you were in grade school? And the teacher said, if I hear one more peep out of you, all of you, you're all going to the principal. And as soon as he quits, some kid in the back says, peep! And you're all marched down to the principal. I mean, you learn at an early age, guilt by association. One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. But see what Abraham's doing? He's working it the other way. He said, Lord, does it work the other way? Is it possible that the guilty many can be spared by the righteous few? Is that possible? Now this is territory that nobody else ever in the history of human beings, according to the Scriptures, ever done. He's exploring this with God. Is it possible, Lord? How about 50? If you got 50 righteous people, would you wipe out everybody, even them? Will you spare it for 50? The Lord says, yes. Yes. How about 45? Yeah. Uh, How about 40? How about 30? I love what Gerhard von Rod, who was one of the great Old Testament scholars of the last century, said. At this point in his prayer, Abraham is astonished that a righteous God would possess such grace. And every time God says yes, Abraham takes it down a step. Remember Alan Greenspan talked about irrational exuberance? This is reverent exuberance. Lord, don't be angry with me. I mean, you can wipe me out if you want, but please don't be angry. How about about 20? Lord, I speak one last time. One, just hear me. One, how about ten? And when he finishes, he discovers a truth that almost nobody knows. Even today. Even Christians. And the truth he discovers is that every wicked man, woman, and child can only be spared through the righteousness of another. See this? How is God going to make good on His promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you? There's only one way. And that is that the blessing comes through the righteousness of another. 
I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to people. Tell me about your faith. I believe in God. What's God like? And then it all goes to pot. But then you ask the question, what if you were to die and stand before God, what would you say? And then people will say something like, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to live a good life. It's not going to wash. That's what Abraham learns. The wicked, if they're ever going to be spared, they're going to be spared through the righteousness of someone else. Then fifth and finally, notice the implication. Look at verse 33. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. In other words, as soon as Abraham gets to 10, he quits. Why does he quit? Do you ever wonder that? Why does he quit? 50? Yeah. 45? Yeah. 40? 30? 10? Why not go lower? Why did he quit? Some say he lost his nerve. Well, that may be true. But I think another reason is because he knew that if he got any lower, he'd be left with Lot and Lot's house. And he knew that while they were relatively righteous, they weren't good enough. You see this? The reason he quits is because he knows that no one is truly righteous. Not even him. You see, in the presence of a holy God, he recognizes that he is not holy. He's not able to spare this city or these cities in this plain. He comes to recognize that that office is reserved for someone else, and we all know who it is, the one to whom he points. I mean, you think of this prayer and compare it to Jesus' prayer in John 17. When Abraham prayed, he prayed for those who could have killed him. When Jesus prayed, he prayed for those who did kill him. When Abraham prayed, he prayed for those who were his enemies. When Jesus prayed, he prayed for his enemies too. When Abraham prayed, every word he utters, he runs the risk of being annihilated by a holy God. Every prayer and every word that Jesus utters to his Father right before the cross, he runs the risk of being alienated, and he is. When Abraham quit at 10, he went back to his tent. When Jesus quit praying in Gethsemane, he went all the way to the cross. He never quit. And when he rose again and ascended into heaven, he still hasn't quit interceding for you and me. You see, there's only one who can save a wicked person, and that's not Abraham. And that's not Lot, it's Jesus. He's the one who hits every single note with perfect pitch. So think of this. Genesis chapter 3, God exposes himself to Satan and says, I promise to destroy you. 
In Genesis chapter 12, he exposes himself to a man named Abraham and says, I want you to leave everything and follow me. And I will give you land and seed and a promise. And in 15, he exposes himself again, chapter 15, between the pieces of these dead animals. And he says to Abraham, if I don't keep my promise, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And then in Genesis 22, he says, stop, don't slay your son because 2,000 years from now, I'm going to do that. And then in Genesis 18, he says, the reason I'm going to do that is because no matter how wicked you are, you can be spared through the righteousness of one. And that's my own son, Jesus. You know something interesting? There's so many lessons here. I'll let you draw your own lessons. But let me just underline one. When he spares you, through the defense attorney who says, I gave my life for them. He, not just said, he doesn't just set you free. He installs you in a position where you can be like Abraham and intercede for others. You say, who? More than friends and family. Even enemies. And you can say to the Lord, Lord, Is it still true that the righteousness of one can erase the sins of many, even them, and the Lord will say to you, absolutely right. He not only installs you in that position, He lays on your heart these people to intercede for, for the glory of Jesus. Think about that. Amen.